I'm Jason Bailey Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting Conversations on Contemporary Art and Culture in Los Angeles and Beyond. Today's guest is Ethan Greenbaum. This episode is more like a studio visit than any other episode I've ever done. The conversations that we have are really detailed about the work that is uh, being taken a look at inside the studio and online from shows that he's put up and imagery that he has taken of the actual works. So before you even start the episode, I'd suggest you look up Ethan, go to his website and take a look at the work. It's amazing. He is one of the kindest, smartest uh, individuals that I have had the opportunity to get on the show. And I thank him very much for taking the time and having the patience for me to actually uh, get this out. That being said, one of the reasons that I did take it delayed on this next episode coming out, I think the last episode was uh, from March, so we've got a good bit of time between these, is that I have moved. I am now living in Connecticut. My family and I did a long 12-day cross-country road trip at the beginning of uh, April to move out here where I could build a studio and we could essentially have a better life and afford to live the life we wanted to live. I talk about all this because the show is about podcasts in L.A. and beyond, but really it was always started as an L.A.-centric type thing. And for me, my ideas about what making art are and how they have changed over the period of time that I started this podcast, and this is episode 50 now, um, are dramatic. How I live my life in the studio and outside of the studio with my family has changed dramatically as well, too. Without going into a lot of detail on some of that stuff, and I might later, I feel like I'm in a better place now, even with the last four months of being here in Connecticut than I, than I was in the last three to four years in Los Angeles. And for me, it was a personal thing where I was always paying a lot of attention to what other people were doing and not enough to what I was doing in my own space and in my own life. So this has given me the opportunity to do that and to make sure that my focus is on my family and making work and making the work I want to make. So I'm really excited about all this and I'm excited about the new episodes that are going to be coming up and that you guys will hear shortly. So without further ado, here is Ethan in a much, much delayed and very good episode. Thanks, buddy. Ethan. Yes. Welcome to the show and thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Glad to do it, yeah. So we are sitting in your studio in Long Island City. Correct. Near near PS1, just a few blocks away. Apparently near uh, one of Takashi Murakami's production facilities. Which for Kai Kai Kiki. Yeah. It's like right down the street. And I'm going to say the window's open, that's why you're hearing any of the uh, motorcycles and all the other wonderful things in the background. So basically what I normally do when I walk into the studio or we have a conversation with somebody, normally they're not done out of the artist studio. I happen to be in New York City this week, but we had talked briefly uh, about speaking. And for me, one of the main things, and I, I didn't tell you this before we started the interview, but one of the main things I told mutual friends that I was coming to interview you, and there were two things that everybody said as I was coming up. They were like, he's really smart and he's a really nice guy. Two daunting hurdles. <laughs> so this interview better be good right. based upon that. Yeah. No, I can because only disappoint. We've only met in passing, so we didn't know each other really well. Yeah. And we've had a nice conversation here in the studio about a range of topics before this even started. Normally, I don't want to get into things so that I can hold it over for the interview, but it was good to sort of get to know each other beforehand. I want to know a bit about where you grew up and how you grew up and what that sort of contributed like I want tell me the background where are you from I was born in New Jersey but I grew up primarily I guess in terms of memory wise in two locations one was Virginia which was which was kind of the the extreme hippie version where my parents lived on a commune uh, where at in Virginia like Floyd County was the was the area which I don't, I, know ha- that. I don't I'm shitty with geography I'd have to see a map is it like near the Blue Ridge Mountains and like yeah I believe so it, it was definitely mountainous you know it was definitely rural how old were you this was between the ages of like two to five or something okay so like real low yeah but I remember it well you know I mean help I guess it helps 
have some photographs. But it, you know, it was a very, it left an impression. It was very much my, my parents uh, were both artists. My father uh, built the house we lived in. He actually built a couple of houses that we moved between. Uh, we had no running water, no electricity. We had oil lamps and outhouses and spent our time, you know, playing in the woods. And, you know, yeah. it, was, it was very, I think, you know, I, I don't have kids myself, but I feel like it's good to raise kids in extreme environments like that, either rural or urban, because you get a lot of stimulus. So when I was little, I had sort of a similar experience. We grew up, and I grew up in the country. We didn't have, we had a chemical toilet in the basement. That's pretty good. It's pretty <laughs> rural, but we had a chemical toilet. And we. one of the things that strikes me about that, living like that as a young child, you don't know the difference. Right. Like that is your reality. So that's how growing up like that is just sort of the way of life, right? Totally. I mean, it's it's funny you know, the retelling becomes its own sort of synthetic floating memory because it, you know. I'm sure it, it adapts and changes over time, right? Yeah, or, or it becomes like weirdly static, which is also a little unnerving. Um, How but so? Meaning uh, it was so long ago and it's being told in, in retrospect that it's, it, I mean, that's a whole conversation about the nature o of memory. Often through like rose-colored glasses too. Sure. Because it, it probably was not that much fun for your, your mom or your dad to not have running water. I wonder, I mean, they chose it. They didn't get there by accident. Yeah, but they moved out of it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right. They, right. They I, think, I think it was, you know, in the spirit of the, you know, it wasn't like it was the 60s. I was born a lot later than that. But I think it was a, in the spirit of that generation, right? Of, and I think, like a lot of people, it, it's, it was not a permanent location, but it was a period of their youth. And do you their, think it was like this altruistic, like, idea of what, how they should be living? Or what do you think that? Well, I think they were both, you know, I mean, to get into their stories, they were both really rejecting their own upbringing. You where know. were they from? Um, my, both from more urban areas. My father from New Jersey, where I was born too, but didn't live very long. Yeah. Uh, and my mother from Baltimore. And, you know, I think they were, and both, you know, my father was raised Jewish, my mother was raised Irish Catholic. And I think for both of them, those were insufficient structures and they were trying to reinvent. So, and it, it wasn't a total fling either. I mean, they still live very rural and have built their latest house from scratch. And so wait, where did they go? Where were they? So after that age of five, where did you guys end up? Going? Then we moved to Florida. And I always like to specify North Florida because it's very <laughs> a very different scene than South Florida. Yeah, Florida is like a funny state. This morning I was watching the news and there was some story of a roller coaster collapse and I was like, of course it's in Florida. Of course it's in Florida. This didn't have and you know it wasn't Disney World. It was you know some well, thank random God. Daytona Beach thing. Everyone lived no no deaths, but yeah, if North Florida is pretty funky. You weren't like religion in your family growing up then, I assume? No. I mean, uh, nothing but the kind of vaguely paganistic variety, you know, of, of appreciating the trees, things like that. When you ended up moving to Florida, like what was the reason? Were your parents working or what was the... Uh, my mother wanted to get a college degree, which she didn't, I guess she hadn't finished. She had started and so she got accepted at the University of Florida and went there. Were they practicing artists or were they? Yes. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was the income stream that my, my father. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, in the craft world, you know, so they, yeah, they would go to craft shows, which ironically are, a lot, are not that dissimilar from art fairs and their structure, you know. So this is, this is a funny thing too, because my family is Iowa. My wife's family is uh, North Carolina and the understanding of how these art, art communities sep or function wholly different in these rural communities. Absolutely. Even if they're not rural, like uh, even just smaller cities. Smaller cities, yeah. where it's it's and not to be. I don't mean in a derogatory way, but it's regionally. It's a regional art scene. Mm -hmm. When you were growing up, did you have an understanding of what art was in like New York City? Like no. how did you how did you under what was your understanding of what art was? I mean, a there wasn't the thought that I needed to, right? There wasn't the category. There wasn't even the cultural category. There's no conscious No, I mean, well, I guess it depends what age we're talking about. But, but you know, uh, certainly it was seeing what my parents did, right? Which was... That's what I mean. Yeah, like, I mean, so which was, which was, yeah, I mean, it was a few things over the years. One was going to art fairs. That was the primary thing, you know, which was the sort of traveling show quality. I would accompany them on a lot of those trips. But, but this is not art fairs like we think of art fairs today. This is no. in, in our community now. Well, I mean, yes and no. What, what they have in common is very much the, you know, I mean, I think when I often tell people my parents are in crafts and they do crafts fairs, they picture like the county fair, right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. of course there's hierarchies in that world too. And so often it would be in venues totally the same that an art fair would be in that we would go, you know, meaning Built like Javits Center kind of place and you, you have booths and it's, you know, for a few days and collectors come from all around the, if not the world, the region, you know, multi-state region. 
and there are some that are very competitive and expensive to get into, and you know, so it's all the same kind of general dynamics. So was the idea for your parents to get into shops and stuff to sell their wares, and then? It was actually most of the time it was direct sales. Like uh, my, my father, early on in his career, um, you know, showed with New York City galleries, but he was completely disinterested in the hype of that world and was like, "Why do I want to split my money with this person when I can just go oh, is that right? to one of these fairs and get all the money?" <laughs> I mean, he was, you know, it's much more pragmatic proposition. Like, you know, it's an economic thing, not a, you know, a, I guess in his mind and world. The idea of a gallery representation had no ego appeal or had no kind of... Which is really why we do this sometimes. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, obviously. I mean, hopefully that's not the only reason, but it's certainly a big part of it. No, it's a huge part um, of it, right? Yeah, so for him it was just like, I got a family to raise, and he, you know, he, he was already breaking a lot of family taboos by making art at all, but he, he, you know, he came from a legal family, uh, so there was no sort of... Lawyers, you mean? Yeah. So he was supposed to. He was supposed to be a lawyer, and he became a. Did he start law school at any point nah, in time? He never, never, never got that far. So he, yeah, he knew he knew early on that wasn't a good fit. Luckily for him. So did the family finally understand like that was the the choice after a while or not? I think in fits and starts. I yeah. think it was a never. It was a permanent mark against him. Um, it's funny how that works. Like my father, my father grew up on a farm. Out in, like from a town, Moorhead, Iowa, a town of like 300 people. Mm -hmm. And I think the assumption always was from his father that he would stay on the farm and the, work the land essentially, mm -hmm. right? And when he didn't do that, there was a real tension in that relationship because one son stayed and the other one yeah. took off. And it never really resolved itself all the way through. For me, my father expected me to be a carpenter like he was. Mm -hmm. And I never did that. But yeah. I, there, but you didn't totally break rakes either, right? Well, you know, at first, I, I honestly remember the day I told him that I wasn't going to. It wasn't like later on in life in like high school or something where I had the, Dad, I'm never doing this. I'm going to be an artist. And my dad was just so pissed. And yeah. I remember him like walking away from me. And my mom was never confrontational in any way. So it just I remember the moment that I sort of told him and how it affected him. But then he was always incredibly supportive in his own way. I went. I ended up going to Rome and living in Rome for uh, undergrad for like six months or doing mm -hmm. a study abroad. And he ended up like, I remember coming back and I spent a bunch of fucking money there. And I came back and my mom was like, your dad is the one who kept saying, keep sending him money, keep sending him money. Do whatever, whatever he needs, give it to him because he needs to have that. That's great. He came around. Well, yeah, in his own way. He didn't tell me. Right. <laughs> right? That's interesting in and of itself, too. Yeah. yeah. So do your parents, do they understand what you do now as far as the type of work that you're making? Yeah. Yeah. They're, 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 they've always, I mean, I never had, I guess, the rebellion that some people go through or the, the, the whatever Oedipal or Freudian issues they deal with in becoming an artist. That that was never too much of a leap for me. I mean, we certainly have uh, interesting conversations about similarities and differences, and that remains interesting for me to think yeah. about reception that way yeah. and, and context. Does it make you approach the work? To, I mean, obviously, it must make you think about the work differently when you're making. In what way? I mean, probably lots of ways. What are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking about just in, I, I don't even mean like monetarily or the way that you approach like how you're going to produce a piece and sell it. I mean like how you're going to make a piece in the studio. Just literally production? Yeah. Just like how you're thinking about the work or producing the work or like how you go about coming to the next decision and the mark that you make on the page. The, you're probably right. I'm thinking about that because it's not something that I'm conscious of. Um, but I certainly think that well, I mean, uh, to pick something tangible, you know, my parents both work with clay a lot, and I yeah. think that idea of clay, you know, and just this idea of a liquid form that could solidify and be formed is something that certainly has stuck with me. It's kind of this very um, basic idea of, of the plastic arts, right, and this idea of you, image making or form making. You had sent me a list of, I said, what do you want to talk about or give me some points and I'll look at the stuff to understand what your work's about a little bit more. And you had sent me this list, and it was funny. You sent, not, the list was not funny, sorry. You making fun of my list? Yeah, I'm making fun of, <laughs> totally. This fucking joke of a list. Right. <laughs> That's actually a joke based on earlier conversation. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What was interesting was, you. here's the list. The list was pottery, psychedelics, comic books, surrealism, and digital photography. By the way, I got that list, and I was like, shit, this is a great list. <laughs> like, I can, I can jive on a bunch of this stuff. But then I had watched a presentation that you had recently done mm -hmm. that you had on YouTube and you sent me it was really good and I just I told you that earlier but I should let everybody else know that I did tell you that but you Thank were you. mentioning that your father in this thing was a ceramicist and yeah. I was I take notes on on this stuff and I was like oh the first thing on his list was pottery yeah it makes sense why the pottery comes into play right away and you had spoken about your father and your mother your mother the painter and mm -hmm. your father the potter 
and I step in the studio, I'm like, of course. Yeah. The reason these marks are being made and they're being made in a certain way is because of the influence of these individuals. And I guess when I ask you the question of how do you consciously think about those conversations, it's not always conscious, but yeah. I think that part is interesting to me. Yeah, 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 for sure. You know, and, and to some degree, there's always this this reverse engineering that goes on, right? You do these things and you think, what, where did that come from? We had talked about yeah. this like right before too, and it's one of the subjects I did want to talk about. Yeah, so yeah, where, you tell me. We're there. We're there, uh, <laughs> where, where, where to go, where we've arrived. I don't even know if I have anything specific that I want to, to address other than the fact that I have run into this in the studio often, and I've brought this up, I think, on the show before, if people listen, that, I've always had a problem where in grad school or like when the assumption is, is that you know what you're making from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And you had just stated the coin, you would, uh, what was the term that you would say? A priori. Yeah, so, and you are supposed to have this all figured out when you start. Yeah. And I think that is definitely a problem, at least for me in terms of, if you don't leave yourself any room to sort of screw up, mm -hmm. then where is the discovery and the understanding when you get to the end to make something new the next time? Right. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think one, you know, I, I definitely think in terms of leaving room for mutation, for lack of a better word, to happen, you know, that, you, that the process needs to be set up in such a way that permutation or the possibility, the strong possibility for permutation is built into it, right? That like, that things are going to keep, are going to keep happening. That change. Yeah, that, that things are going to happen, you know, and the, the specifics of this is where individual practices come in, you know, but this, you know, so in my case, for instance, I've gotten, you know, I've gotten interested in the way I work at this stage, at least things happen in sort of discrete ways that are relatively unholistic, you know, meaning, so for instance, the vacuum forms, there's a photo and then a mold is made and the thing is formed and then sometimes there's further painting, but each one of those stages is so distinct from the next that inevitably there's misalignments that are unforeseen, right? That the, yeah. the way the mold distorts the imagery, um, the way, you know, the way it does and doesn't align with the imagery, the, the things that can happen that are either pleasing or unpleasing in that process that then leave room for you know either further destruction or addition through painting or sanding you know each one of those things is so distinct from the next that i feel like I, and again i've recognized this through time it, it, it builds in mutations or builds in you know i'm looking for a good term misalignments mutations things that go off the rails of linear thinking sort of unexpected moments yeah, it, it, enlightenment it, almost yeah and, and i think that's that's i think just based on how the brain works a good thing to to you know, figure out for yourself. You know, how can you develop a process? Or that's what I've thought a lot about. Well, and allow those moments to take place, right? Yeah. How can you know exactly? How can you create a setup that will allow that to happen with some regularity? But that took me a really long time to figure out that that was what was needed to make the work better. Right. Yeah. Well, it's because it's well, it's about vulnerability, which is always a hard lesson, right? Well, and you can't fake that. Right. I think you. I've tried. Right. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't read as honest. Yeah, I, Mel Bachner. I think he wouldn't mind me telling this story, but I always. I'm going to tell it anyway. I think he he'll never hear the podcast. Uh, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Hi, Mel. Uh, he had the story about working for Robert Motherwell. I always liked, where he said he came in one day, and Motherwell was in front of the canvas with a little bottle dropper and a brush and he was placing drips in front of one of his big Spanish elegy paintings. Yeah. And he said, Bob, what are you doing? And he said, well, some drips are better than others. And Mel concluded it with, and that broke my heart. Uh, but anyways, yeah. I think it's, you know, it's yeah. sort of, in a way, like, man, it's a real indictment against Motherwell, which I think was the point of the story, yeah. you know, <laughs> that he was building in his accidents. He, he was planning for his accidents. Do you but, know what's funny about that is that, well, not funny about that, but I think it's interesting is that for me, it, this is another thing that took me a long time. Anybody who knows me personally, or probably has listened to this podcast, knows that I, uh, I'm pretty opinionated. So I have opinions of other people's artwork and I'm not afraid to share that often or a way of doing or, or sort of understanding what is good or bad art, right? Mm -hmm. It's taken me a long time to figure out though that even though an approach is different than the way I would approach making a piece, it still has value. And that's saying... <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> well, I mean, this sounds like a... I think it's really... More artists should think about that. Right, right. Because it's really... It sounds like a pretty basic thing. Yeah. And I think we all walk into a situation thinking that things should be done the way that we're going to do them, because that's probably the best way to do it. Yeah. Or at least it's the way we figured out works for us. Right. So I'm looking in your studio right now at some of the, the pieces and how they're made. And this is sort of a subject I want to talk about as well, is that I didn't anticipate seeing some of the tools and stuff in here that I see. Mm -hmm. Such as? Well, I'll get to that. Okay. But I look at these works and I make assumptions about them based upon 
what I'm seeing. And then you step into a studio and you see how they're made in the hand and the process and the mark that goes into it. And I'll be honest, you have a newfound respect for the amount of energy and time put into something when you sort of know how it's made sometimes. Mm -hmm. So like I see the router over here is one of the things. So like me thinking that, and it's something that I'm very familiar with because I use the router in my work as well too, but like it is a plunge router where you're dropping that thing into that plexi and cutting by hand and that's dangerous as shit. They mostly healed, but I wanted to show all these marks on my arms from flakes flying off. But this is like a real thing, like the, the sweat and the energy, and not that I didn't think the work was to begin with, but I didn't anticipate to see the thing that I'm doing mm-hmm. done the same way in your studio. I would never would have thought that in a million years because the work is so clean and put together and looks like it is, it's a beautiful finished product in my work, the way that I use it doesn't turn out the same way sometimes. Right, right, right. Well, that idea has always interested me too, this idea of sort of, maybe one way of putting it is a deferred gesture or like a a sentiment that is held in my, you know, I would think of it as held at a respectful remove. You know, like I've definitely thought about that a lot. This, you know, just this idea of like having something that's tactile, but also is somehow, under glass, maybe, or somehow at a, you know, there's some, some at a distance. You yeah, think it some creates a tension. That yeah, I think so. And I think, well, I, I mean, in different bodies of work, it's varied. But I know one of the conscious thoughts I had with, that I was going for was the sensation of, of imagery that so many of us have. So the show that was just at Lyles and King that came down a few weeks ago, or what was it? Uh, yeah, about a week ago. Okay, so some of that was behind glass, no? Or what uh, well, was it was literally on gla- I mean, none of it, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that gets to the heart of the process, right? None of it's behind any, or, or I guess it is actually, sorry. You know, it's, it's, a lot of those were all printed on double-sided sheets of material. So it looked like there was a distance between some of the actual objects that were inside the pieces sometimes. Yes. Whether, in, but to me, there was a tension there as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm trying to get specific here. You know, so for instance, there was a series of works that were on thick sheets of plexi, and there'd be like really heavy routered gouges in the front, but then the imagery would be printed on the back, and so you're seeing through one through another. And, and you know, so in my mind, that was uh, a way to get at maybe this idea of scrolling or touching that we have with imagery now, right, on a screen. Right. Not that that's the exclusive subject matter, but it's the sensation that I'm trying to get at. So get you, at. you talked about the work in, in this presentation you gave as sculptural photography. Mm-hmm. For me, because I'm a sculptor, I think I read them as reliefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To maybe it would be helpful for you to basically describe the process of how some of these things are made with the initial photograph and then going into an object. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll, I mean, I've done different bodies of work, but talking about the last show. Yeah. Uh, it was sort of two things. One was vacuum formed photographs, which I've been working with for a few years, more than a few years now. But basically they're photos uh, that are printed on both sides of a sheet of material. So again, it's help, more helpful to have visual cues, but that's what the internet is for. Uh, you know, but essentially there's, let's say a photo of a piece of signage on a wall. Yeah. Half of, part, part of that image we printed on the front, part of the image we printed on the back. So already there's the sheet of material that it's on, a translucent sheet of material that is creating a literal separate yeah. between the front and the back. And they sort of, you know, especially as the materials get thicker, the alignment increases, or yeah. misalignment increases. And then in the case of the vacuum forms, I'll then hand make a mold. You know, some of these things are gestural marks made by hand out of plaster and yeah, ceiling yeah. tiles and cardboard. So I'll make a mold that's, you know, sort of, uh, I think of as a empathetic or tactile response to the image where it's made in response to it, but not literalizing it yeah. and then that's heated and formed around the, the photo is heated and formed around the mold right. and then removed so the photo in the end is a kind of skin uh, of the sculpture so it is so hard to read this in any of the photos that I saw online yeah. of any of the works and yeah. which seeing them in person it disappoints me that I can't understand it as richly as I can sitting here in the studio yeah, I think you got, I got to start making videos of them or 3d scans that well I was wondering around. one of the things that conservators do is they always take photos of pieces in raking light mm-hmm so they can see actually where a damage is on, on a piece of paper or on a painting so yeah. that they can see the pops and sort of the undulation in surface yeah. tension. I was thinking like I'm sitting here in this raking light looking at these pieces and they they feel like reliefs on a wall, like sculptures. Yeah, like, yeah. I want to see them like this almost sometimes. It might be a good tip. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, ironically, I'm not that much of a photographer in my training at all. So um, I'm open to, I'm well, open to but, suggestions. But I'm thinking about it in terms of sculpture though too. When yeah. I take a picture, and to me these read as sculptures almost as anything else because I'm a sculptor. Sure. But when I take a picture of a sculpture, I take a picture of it from multiple angles as well. Yeah. And I always think about it in those terms. And, 
some of the most interesting pe- things happening in these pieces are at, at an angle. Extreme angle, yeah. 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 Yeah, the raking light, I think. I mean, I do have angled shots, but I think the raking light is something to consider a little more strong. I, I, I've talked to um, Peter Halley about this, who I work for, and whose work is even more subtle in its relief. And this is a constant thing he's battling with, too, or, or just dealing with, is that you don't get that quality. Well, you mentioned how we sort of view the world and we view the world through a digital prism sometimes. Mm-hmm. I would seen this in another conversation, but how do you think that translates then into people understanding the work when they're only looking at stuff through Instagram or through a PDF? Like, cause we're dealing with our galleries and the galleries are gonna try to sell the work on a PDF often, right? Yeah. So one of the things that I've had a problem with in LA is I wanna get the work out to a broader audience. But if they're only sending it through visual cues, how does that, like, what do you, how do you think about that? What do you mean by how do I think about it? Well, is there, how do you deal with it? Like, is there a way to, I mean, obviously it's a challenge, yeah. but does it, does it detract from the process or? Well, I mean, uh, there's probably a few ways to answer that. On a pragmatic level, I know that Isaac at, at Lyles and King was taking lots of videos and that's one thing he was sending people. And did it work? Uh, he made some sales. <laughs> well, but I mean, yeah, but yeah. did it work for you? When you saw the pieces, did they read in a way that you thought was helpful to understand what the work was? It helped was? a little bit, yeah. I mean, I gotta say, I'm a really bad judge. Uh, this is one of the, you know, I think artists often have big blind spots that are helpful and hurtful, um, but I'm a really bad judge of how the work reproduces in, in photos, because I know it too well, you oh. know what I mean? So I often rely on other people to tell me uh, yeah, like I see the photos, I'm like, yeah, you can tell what's going on. But I know that's not true for most people because of what feedback I get. You did a before and after shot in one of your, uh, in your presentation. You showed the piece, like, uh, was it the vacuum form pieces? Oh, those were CNC pieces probably. Or okay. maybe I showed vacuum form too. But you showed like a, a pre of what it was before the color actually went onto it. So this process is, on some of these, is you run them through and they're printed with color or the, the photo after. After the carving. After the carving. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what's happening. Some of the ones here too. Which is. Awesome. Yeah, thank it's you. It's really, but it's neat to see it in terms of what that process is. Sometimes I don't want to see the process. Right. Because it removes sort of the sexy nature of what you want to prescribe the work to be. Right. Yeah, it depends on the work a lot. It but, does. But the process but, creates a narrative, which is appealing. I well, think. for me, the process created, a, or seeing the process, at least for your work, created a depth, like a, a physical depth mm-hmm. on the object yeah, that yeah. I didn't realize existed prior to the, the print because the prints are so good. Yeah, it's they're almost so good that you can't see the depth unless you're in with the object standing up close to it. Right. Well, and going back to how do I deal with it? I mean, this is this is an evolving question for me because on one level, you know, we were talking earlier. I definitely like the idea of embodiment. I mean, that's that's the end. You know, I'm still very much in what way in the sense that like you're in the space with the thing. That's the that's the real experience. You know, that there's I'm you not want people to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and mean, I I'm guess not, this is what I was getting. Yeah, at. I'm not. You know, I know certain artists are really into you know, tweaking and playing with the representation on screen, which some of that I can get into, but but just, yeah, personally speaking, I really like the idea of, yeah, that, that kind of encounter between an, you know, an individual and, the, and an actual object. So maybe this is gonna, I'm geeking out too much on this, but do you feel like when you're creating an installation or you're creating like a, a show, do you feel like sometimes those pieces need to be seen in the room together the way that they are? before they go out and exist separately? It, it helps the cause, sure. I mean, that's always the, you know, the opportunity of a solo show, right, is you can kind of create a little more of a world, uh, which is, I, I think. Well, I, f- I feel sometimes that I'll create a piece and then somebody wants it for a group show or something, and I don't want to give it to them. Right. Because it needs to be, in, it needs to be represented in a bigger. It needs the company of its. Well, it needs to have a conversation. Yeah. And without the conversation with the other objects in the room, then it's, it's lost something. Yeah. And I don't know if you feel that way about these pieces, but you did. You just put two pieces up over on the on the wall over here before mm-hmm. we came, and it, I asked you. I said, "Is that a diptych?" Because they're of the same subject from different angles, right? Yeah. They look amazing together. But the question was, are they a single piece or are they individual pieces? I think I think in the case of this piece, there'll be a it'll be a diptych. So um, why? How do you determine? It's, it's more interesting relationship. You know, it, it's sort of. Uh, you know, they're both going to go to a show. So again, because there's a solo show, it's a chance to um, un, you know, show multiples. Yeah, of the same spread thing. out a little more. You know, and, and I, but I, I mean, that to me, that's I do think of. I mean, I guess you're asking two things. One is I certainly uh, try to make things that have enough presence on their own to to, to survive. To survive, yeah. Which they is, should. Yeah, which you never know if that's going to happen, but that's the goal yeah. for sure. 
And then two, yeah, well, I think of a solo show very much as a chance to, I mean, A, just through sheer volume, tell a story or to create a, I, I actually don't think in terms of, which I think, I don't think in terms of telling a story as much as creating a world. And that's sort of a distinction that maybe only you, means so something me, to me. So tell me, what's the difference in that? The yeah. distinction is one is more physical and experiential. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a narrative thinker, which is some, re, you know, which is. Oh, is that right? I don't think so. Yeah. I, I, I used to be, it's like a, a switch, a, something happened when I hit puberty. I used, to, <laughs> I used to write short stories all through middle school and I turned like 14 and that dried up. I don't know what that's about. That's, that's a whole probably worthy of reflection, but, but I get, but the point I'm guess I'm getting at is I am much more interested in like kind of, um, ex experiential experience, atmospheric experience, you know, making, you know, and, and that happens even with a bunch of paintings hanging together. Right. But, it, but that's the opportunity of a solo show. And usually when I have solo shows, I'll do something site specific or something that's unique to that situation, which is a part of a way of creating, you know, not, not in a traditional, you know, wild installation, but it's a way of making that whole experience specific and unified. Well, I think this is like to me, and I, I'm trying to figure out a way to like. I think the idea between being narrative and like your your experiential the 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 world you're creating is telling a story. Sure. Right. Yeah. So although you're not telling a very specific narrative, and there's no beginning and end to it, you're creating this environment that actually creates a story in some way. It's a bit of a semantics game, I feel like, right? Because it could also be about creating it. I mean, I guess it depends on the viewer's experience, right? People might... I guess you're not being specific. No, I mean, in your world you're creating, you're getting so specific about something that there's no beginning and end to Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I mean, there's, I guess I'm making a distinction because there's plenty of artists who will set things up where there's a narrative in the press release that's very explicit or there's a series of paintings, you know, that tell a sequence of events. You know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of people whose brains operate that way. So when you approach, like, creating the different bodies of work, how are you thinking about, like, what's going to be the next body of work for the next thing that you're doing? I mean, I'm, you know, it, it, like in the, and right now I just did the show with Lyles and King. Yeah. And I now have a show coming up with uh, Gallery Pact in Paris. I'm mostly just thinking about how to take whatever I learned and, does, and build on it. Does you know? the medium have something to do with it? I mean, sure. obviously, but yeah. like when you're working with that medium and figuring out how to actually get your hands on it and, and develop it into something. So your experience in like the show at Lyles and King is going to inform you on what you're doing for the next one, obviously, right? Yeah. But is that more of the way that you're going to think about producing the next thing instead of trying to create a very specific narrative for what that show is going to be? Yes, that, the, the former. Yes. Um, you know, so for instance, I did, yeah, I did a bunch of these carved plexiglass pieces and I just sort of hit on them right at the end of the show and I'm you were like, oh shit, further. Yeah. like that's a thing. Yeah, and also along the same lines, what we're talking about, about sort of uh, how things reproduce, I'm interested in intensifying sort of the distinction between the stages involved. So for instance, I'm showing more, I'm, I'm gonna do more of showing the substrate beneath the image and the way it intersects with the image and having a less kind of like, you know, for instance, image being holistic, printed edge to edge yeah. and, and, and coherent, I'm, I'm showing more of the space you know, I'm just leaving certain sections of it out, for instance, so that this, the sub shit shows through. I'm also uh, making the carving more aggressive. You know, I, I find that subtlety is not a strength of mine, uh, that often subtlety gets wasted. And, and I think that's the, that's the way I'm feeling. Like, like I also did a column at that show with Lyles and King. I, I built columns, yeah. covered them with photos of the gallery floor. And I would say 75% of the people who missed came in it. missed it completely. Isn't that funny? It's amazing. When they saw it, they were usually pleased to have discovered it. But, but point being, whenever I've done things that uh, are maybe, this is, I think, very personal to me. I think certain artists are masters of subtlety and I admire them. But for myself, subtlety doesn't seem to be a, a strength. You know, that usually I have to sort of crank up uh, or overstate my intentions a little bit. I think subtlety sometimes, though, is an internal way to process what you're doing. So like Robert Irwin, as an example, I think like a lot of those things that he was doing with the room and that sort of experiential moment that he was having were about him. They weren't about the audience mm -hmm. and how they were going to actually take that in. Yeah. Right? I mean... I, I, maybe. I don't know. I mean, this is it. Like, I guess for me, I think subtlety sometimes has a lot to do with what your issues are with the work. Sometimes, depending. Mm -hmm. And I think some people do it really, really well. And other times, I think it's uh, it's about what the audience sees. And this is always, I mean, this is this is making art, right? Is, is you know, what, you know, are you, how effectively can you 
take what are often very personal issues and make them worth looking at for somebody? You know, or how can you engage in a way that makes them meaningful and legible for someone who's not necessarily preoccupied with the same things? I normally don't geek out on like talking this specific about why people are making work or how they go about thinking it. But for me, the reason that I'm doing this is because you you think about things in a different way than I think about things. Uh -huh. It's obvious, but we still have an overlap in how we actually process things, mm -hmm. and the end result of like how we turn out the the work at the end is different and it's in its own so i'm trying to understand sort of how you go about even thinking about putting these things together it's very interesting to me the other thing i do i do not want to forget psychedelics or comic books on this <laughs> list but what you talked briefly i heard you speak briefly about psychedelics mm -hmm. and you've done a good number of psychedelics is what you were <laughs> I saying i paid my dues so one of the things that i was thinking about when I was sort of preparing to come in here was drugs to me, I grew up straight edge, mm -hmm. but drugs to me were a different thing in the Midwest than meth. Yeah, it's exactly what yeah. it was. So like everybody was on meth or they were smoking weed, but then went directly into meth. Right. Because I... Sounds like a limited drug economy. It really, I mean, it was, yeah. right? This is 90s in Iowa and... I always associated drugs bad, right? Mm -hmm. Like I didn't associate drinking bad though, which of course it's worse in some aspects. But then I was thinking about how you grew up in a different, your parents grew up in a community that like drugs weren't necessarily a bad thing all the time. Right. Right? Yeah. So I mean, you're- tons of pot smoking for sure. Right, but for me that was never present unless it was with people who were not good people. Right. So my entire outlook on life and, and drugs changed. And now I'm, I'm totally, I could give a shit, but I still don't participate. So my understanding of like why psychedelics are important to you and how you sort of access that and it helps your work mm -hmm. or just in life in general, another good friend of mine is, is very much into it. And he is a serious believer in that he has become a better person because of it. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about your experience. And I should say it's more of a retroactive sort of like talking about my parents, you know, not, meaning that not that I am uh, completely a non-participant, but it's not a regular part of my life anymore. It used to be. Uh, it used to be. Yeah. How long uh, ago? I mean, it, it, the heyday was like a million years ago. It's when I was in high school and early yeah. college. But I've continued to use psychedelics occasionally up until recently. But the reason you were using them back then has got to be different than, maybe not, different than the using you used them more recently. I don't think it was that different. You yeah. think you were trying to figure your stuff out? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You were trying to figure out where you were in the world and who you were. Where? Yeah, that's a good way of putting actually where I was is a good way of putting it. Um, I mean, again, some of this is retroactively... Uh, applied, but it's certainly. I mean, anyone who's done psychedelics knows it's not a party drug. You know, you don't do yeah, it. No, you don't do it to, to to rock out with your friends. It's usually a pretty personal set of questions that arise. You know, and, and yeah, like I remember. You know, I used to like taking thing like mushrooms typically and going to the mall or going out to public spaces where my friends' parents were going to be because it was like this layer over the world that you know the the, the world as you knew it was still there a hundred percent. But so were so many other kind of uh, per, you know perspectives and interpretive windows, and that's that. Once once you see that, you know uh, you know it's funny. I feel like we're in this cultural moment with like Michael Pollan's book, where suddenly psychedelics are being talked about yeah. uh, publicly, which is interesting for me to think about why that is. But that's just an aside. But once you see, you know once you have those experiences, I guess the reason I thought of Michael Pollan is he may I remember him saying something similar. Once you have those experiences, they're not isolated to that moment on the drug. That, that those are as real as your trip to you know. Paris after school was, and so they they they're they're, they're uh, you know they're they're um, perspective changing. So why was okay? So why in your list of things and the and the things that you gave me, psychedelics were number two on the list. <laughs> the sequence is maybe that's unconscious, but uh, well maybe it is. But yeah. like it, it had some type of play. Well, I mean, in, I like think, what's relevant to you and yeah. how you like produce things, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, when it comes to, as far as what I just said as it relates to work, it, I think it's just this sense that you know that, that, that paying attention to your specifics and your specific surroundings, you know, that includes, in my case, especially the way things are built and made in the built world, but anything that catches you is really a worthwhile pursuit, you know, that, that because things are not what they seem necessarily, or, you know, you are not what you seem, you know, that, that if you're able to shift your own perspective, new, new vistas open up. You know, um, to get specific on my work, you know, one of the things that on an optical level happens with psychedelics is literally surfaces are not stable, right? right. You know, that literally they vibrate, they move, they shift. 
And that's something I definitely think about my work, this idea that you know, I'm depicting very often dead ends, flat surfaces, things that are seemingly obdurate and material and full stop, right? But two things, one, the way I'm representing them is a way of untangling that a little bit or creating space within them, you know, literally separating an image out on two parallel planes, digging into an image, pushing from the back of an image. But also a lot of the imagery is of something that is in fact an indicator of something below the surface, right? So I've done a lot of imagery of infrastructural mark making, which is a language that tells you there's wires below, yeah. right? So it's this conceptualization of what actually is unseen. I've done a whole series of 3D prints of different like outlets and power cord sockets it's similar idea, right? You see one of these, A, it's as deadpan as they come, but it's also yeah. a conceptual access point to electricity and wiring. Right. And, you know, and, and so, so I'm, I find myself, and I've done a bunch of like construction hole fences, right? These walls that are put up with little peekaboo windows. So you had that at your show at uh, Dakota? Uh, at Super, Super Dakota, Dakota, I did a lot of those images, yeah. Um, well, you had the construction wall. And explain this piece, because I thought this was sort of genius. The window the, installation. The window installation. Yeah, I mean, which is that. an example of something site-specific. And when yeah. I, I did a show at Super Dakota in Brussels, and it's this kind of um, you know Art Deco 20s era building, really beautiful. And I installed a large vinyl sticker on the window, on the exterior of the window, of a green New York City construction fence with a little hole cut out for the actual hole cut out where the window was. So when you walk by it casually, it's pretty trompe l'oeil, um, but it- but it, it looked real. Yeah, it looks real. Even when you're there, it looks almost pretty real. I mean, logic tells you it's not. But, uh, you know, so it was this idea of, you know, A, a surrealist gesture, I, I thought of it as such, you know, of taking one location, which is also a form of surrealism that I think is just embedded in photography. You know, you can take one thing and move it somewhere else, like yeah. literally capture it and move it. Um, you can overlay, especially in photography as we have it available to us now, you know, it can be on any substrate, it can be scaled and moved around in a way that was never possible. Yeah. So I like this idea that it was a, you know, a geographical mislocation, a um, process mislocation. Why would you have a green construction fence on a gallery window? But also an access point. But also an access point, exactly. It was a day. Where you can look through and see the show from a different angle. and Exactly, it's a framed view. And on the interior, if you walked in, what I did is I whitewashed the window around that window. So it's another way of blocking out the window. So it's this impractical double negative of, of blocking access, yeah. but also allowing a way through. So that's, that's a big theme that I, you know, I think for many reasons I'm interested in, but it does tie back to psychedelics, which is that what you think you know is not as stable as you think it is, right? That, that right. even the most familiar is usually an opening onto something else. And I think that's a really something that stayed with me from those experiences. You say you're not good at subtlety, but like that right there is so subtle in sort of those movements and the action of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's really, it takes a deft hand to sort of go in and be able to do some of those things. When I look at the work and you can't see, I think there's this nice, this nice moment where you have to be with the work sometimes to understand the subtlety of what's happening mm -hmm. in some of those pieces. Yeah. Well, you say you're not good at it. I think you're better at it than you're actually. <laughs> well, maybe that's, I appreciate that a lot. And maybe maybe a more interesting question is like where the subtlety lies, right? Right. And, you know, which, where, where and that's 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 a again that's a general art challenge, right? That's a that's a speaking challenge. When do you speak up? When do you speak quietly? Well, it's like do you like putting a column in the center of the room is purposely doing it. Right. Like trying to be, like trying to be. I thought it, there's nothing more aggressive than putting a column where it doesn't belong, but apparently it was such a good decoy, it just blended in. You know, it's funny, with the show that I had at uh, Zier Smith and 16, there was a giant, a real giant column in the center of the room, and it's a problem for me because I make vertical work. Yeah. So the way to get around it was I created bases underneath the pedestals that were all the footprint of the column. Mm, so it was like a unifying gesture? Yeah, but it, the, the column disappeared in the room. Yeah. It worked. Like, yeah, because I painted all the all of my duplicate footprints were yellow. Yeah. So the white column just completely disappeared in the room when you and you still look at you look at photos of it and you don't pay attention that's to smart. the yeah. giant column in the center of the room. Yeah, yeah, that's smart. I, I won't. It just worked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, but I think I mean you know we could probably don't want to geek out too much in this column. No one can see, but but I think if I was to do it again, I would make the imagery uh, much more apparently fake. You know, because I didn't want it to disappear. As would much you pop as it did. the color or something? Or I, like... I think I might play with the resolution actually. You know, I'd make it like fuzzier. So this is something that you did at uh, maybe it was Super Code where you have the doors at the different perspective or the different that was a uh, pact in, in, in okay, Paris. Okay, so pact in Paris. You yeah. had three basic doors, but they were milled with CNC. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Yep. So as you, but what was neat about them as they got bigger, the 
they got distorted because the imagery was closer up and the scale of what was being cut out was distorted as well too. Yeah, the, the, the carving. So basically I took a photograph of one of these Home Depot plastic doors, which is the kind of thing that- Oh, always, I didn't even know you took a photo That's of all it. based on a photo, yeah. Um, which is one of the kind of things that interests me because you know I'm often into, again, it's another for me entrance point like the markings, you know, these materials like a plastic door that's made to look like wood is a really funny object, right? It's already this amount of heavy labor, you know, mold making, reproduction, mass, you know, mass produced to look like a material that it's not, right? Yeah. And so, and it's a door, which is both a dead end and an entrance point, right? It's, yeah. a, it's a classic item. So I, I like the idea that I was returning it back to its original materiality, but in, injecting something of the... Which is wood. Which is wood, but injecting some of the photographic experience of it, you know? So, I, so it's basically a height map made of this... You do this with all the, the with a with a lot of the CNC's work. Yeah. You, you're taking out original photo that's completely flat, yeah. and then you're mapping it to have. I'm, yeah, I'm creating a height map based valleys, on the basically. value range of the photo. So yeah, basically the the, the photo the information in the photo becomes sculptural, right? Where it's dark, it carves in. But, where it's light, it projects. But you have these moments of this material. It doesn't read exactly as the photo reads. Right. And you get sort of imperfections and. And the, and it was done on plywood, which created almost this holographic effect because there's all these different layers of plywood that are being passed through, and so there's gradations and of you know, color. So yeah, gradations of color. So produces a quasi-photographic you know, image uh, with no, so it's basically a sculpture made from a photo with no photographic. Uh, How did you fall into finding out that that's what you wanted to do with the photos? I think it uh, initiated in, a, in, in an impulse. You know, we talked about a priori. Well, it, it's not that in a way. It's, uh, you know, I think I had this re recurring impulse to like, to introduce touch where it doesn't exist, you know, or, 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 you know, and to introduce tactility into things that resist it. So you have a, so just start to finish. So you have a photo, which by most accounts, you know, has, has historically been kind of very hermetic and sealed off. Yeah. And there's this desire to like, go literally go deeper, you know, how can I make, how can I give this the tactility and presence and vividness that I'm experiencing, you know? Well, there's this crazy fight, the more that I think and sort of look at the work, there's this crazy fight between technology and, and hand mm -hmm. process and tool and, and technology and the work and bringing, like you're using technology to bring something back into a piece yeah. that would normally be used to separate it further away from, from that thing, the original mm -hmm. intent of what that piece is. So you have the, the wood to begin with for the door, but it's been changed into like a, a preform mold that you're re-photographing to bring it back into the wood, but you're using technology. The same technology used to create the thing is used to, to bring it back right. into this. Yeah. So this idea of using technology to go back to the original form is something I think is really different that I haven't seen mm -hmm. before. That's well put, I like that, yeah. I mean, I, I think, I guess a few things. I mean, one is I, I don't see it so much as oppositional as cyclical. You know, I'm really interested. Like, I mean, what you just said is kind of a perfect example of that, right? It's, it's using the same thing that might be used to make a plastic door to bring it back into wood, right? It's, it's reverse engineering. Yeah, it's not, and, and you know, and, but then at the same time, it's also like creating a photographic effect through the And it's carving. imperfect. Yeah. Through its, it, but the imperfections in that give it sort of its, its heart. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I guess I'm, I'm just, uh, as you're saying that, I'm thinking like, I know that I'm consciously not interested in being overly celebratory of any one medium or technology. You know, it's not. Uh, you're not romanticizing anything. I guess not, or I would say celebrating, romanticizing. Maybe it's fair too. You know, I, I guess I just mean like there's always a lot of work, some of which I like, some of which I don't, which is enamored with its own tools, right? Um, that the tools are almost the subject matter, and I, at least in my mind. They're, they're, I'm interested in t you know, creating narratives, if you will, of process and of tools and creating relationships among these parts that play with hierarchies and play with you know, what, what uh, you know, and basically more than anything are, are uh, create an affect that feels, you know, feels alive, you know, that, that feels like how we experience things. I, I've always had an issue with my own work where I've, not always, up until a certain point where I corrected it. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> I always thought I needed to show how skilled I was or what my hand was within the work for a long time. This yeah. idea of showing that skill set or mm -hmm. that process yeah. was really important to me because I thought that's what, honestly, I thought that's what was going to make me stand out from a lot of other people. Because mm -hmm. you had this special ability. I had this special ability to do this thing that other people couldn't do. Yeah. So I thought that was the thing that I needed to show because it was what was going to make me stand out. And why did you find you were wrong about that? 
it was one of those things you learn like six months later. So my dad and I were in the studio, and I think I probably told this story before, but we had a piece on the wall. I had a piece, and we were, I was moving to California. He came to help me move it, and there was a joint in it. Mm-hmm. And my dad is a, a master carpenter. I grew up building homes with him and finished work and all this other stuff. Respect his ability immensely. I'm on the phone with my mom to talk to him to get information on how to build stuff all the time. I, I do that with my dad too. Actually. Yeah, yeah, but I saw the image of you and your dad, and you handing your dad nails, uh-huh. and it made me really sentimental. Yeah, because those moments are things that are so relevant. And this was one of the homes you guys built, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you have fond memories of this as well? Yeah. I, assume? I mean, as much as I'm able to remember it. Yeah. We had, I had this piece on the wall here in Brooklyn, and uh, my dad, we were lifting it off the wall. It was big enough, it took two of us on either side of it, and he stopped me, and he goes, hey, hang on, one, one second, one second. And he goes, and he starts looking at this joint I would put together, and he goes, this joint, how did you do this right here? And I was like, oh, well, I did this, this, and this. He goes, okay, that's great, that's great, good, good job. And he went back to the wall, he started lifting, he goes, oh, hang on one sec. And he went back to the joint again, and he looked at it real quick, and he goes, oh, okay, okay. And he goes back, and we lifted it. And I was like, oh, that was really nice. Mm-hmm. I got that piece to California like six months later. They took it to Iowa and brought it out. And the first thing I did with that work is cut it up into like 50 pieces. Because? Because it wasn't a good work. But uh-huh. what it was was I was looking for his validation. Right. So. And I didn't realize it. Uh-huh, and the whole uh-huh. time that I was creating these pieces and trying to show my skill set, I was looking for someone to pay attention to me and understand that I had this ability to do something or see that I am worth something yeah. because of this thing. And yeah. I got it from the person that it mattered most. Right, you cashed that in. Between undergraduate and graduate school, I audited some figure drawing and painting classes at University of Florida. And there was a professor there, Jerry Cutler. And you know, one of the deals we struck up, I was like, you know, I want, I'm trying to like learn stuff. And I, I basically was like, can you tutor me? And he's like, yeah, if you come over and work, it was a beautiful deal for him. He's basically like, come and work for me for like eight hours. I'll give you one hour, hour of tutoring. Oh, are you kidding? No, he's a sweet man. That's At the right. time I, though, that you're like, oh my I God, jumped that on. I, mean, I knew it was so, I knew it was better for him than me probably, but I was still like, fine, I'll do it, you know? And it, it was actually very sweet. I, I, I still have very fond memories of him. And, uh, but you know, so what would happen is I'd go over and help him build crates or do this yeah, or that yeah. as a painter. And then I'd sit down, I'd be like, so why? I was like, so why is Cezanne good? I don't understand. You know, it was well, really like this basic is real, questions. These are the basics. <laughs> I told you, you, you heard the interview with B. Wirtz. Uh-huh. I did this to him like four years ago, yeah. where I sat down with him and I was like, tell me why a sculpture on the wall is a painting and not a sculpture. Like, yeah. I, you have to have those conversations with people to, sometimes you gotta let go of your own sort of hubris to, and be humble. Yeah, no, I, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, well, you know, if I'm looking to make connections, that goes back to asking basic questions. You know, I was like, I literally didn't understand it as I wanted to. And that set me off on like a whole trajectory of like reading books on creation of pictorial space and you know. Is that right? Yeah, 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 and I made, I made diagrams. Were and, you doing you know. this before grad school? Yeah, this is all pre-grad school. No shit. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so, so, so I very much was trying to put the pieces together, you know, and, and, that, and that question about Cezanne was super useful because Cezanne, it's hard what to see the, him anymore. What was the answer? I don't remember the answer, but the fact that I asked the question was the point. You know? <laughs> uh, seriously, I'm not trying to be arrogant. No, like, no, that's know, true. It was just, it was yeah. just that I, I created, uh, and he helped me get there, but I created that frame. You and gave yourself space to have that, that frame. Question that frame yeah. was an entry point to a ton of research, you know? Yeah. Like, if you ask that question earnestly, I still think now, you know, like as much as cubism is not, a, you know, the operating system most people are making the best work with, it's still worth digging through, you know, that certain, I, certain elements of that work have an intensity that still radiates. I look at modernism the same way. Yeah. Like I go back and I research, obviously, if you look at my work, you can see that, but like the, the, the access points are the things that have already been thought about or discovered for you to go back and research and find out so that you're not sort of stepping on the feet of the people who came before you. Yeah. Well, it's even better if it's out of fashion. <laughs> it is, you know, you're more likely to dig something up that'll surprise people. It's totally true. Uh, Ethan, thank you for taking the time sure. to speak with me and inviting me to the studio. This is lovely. And thank you so much for coming. So yes, no, this is great. Okay, man. Mm-hmm.